welcome to the St. Emelins podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm Simon Carley. And here we are again. It feels like not long ago, and yet the world has changed more than it had last time, Simon. There is more coronavirus. There is more planning. There is more action. There are more patients. How are you getting on up in Manchester? Well, you're quite right. It feels sometimes that every time I go to work, it's a different department because there's been so much change and so much dynamism and the whole system is is really agile at the moment. It's really difficult to keep up. So yeah, lots of things happening. We're definitely in the early phase of the upswing of COVID-19 cases. We're seeing lots through and some pretty sick people as well, but we're regularly, we're, we're daily putting people onto ITU now. We're admitting large numbers. So we're, 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 Probably about a week behind London, I think, but it's uh, really hotting up now. And I think here in Southampton, we're probably a week behind you, but that seems to be how it'll go. It's big cities first and then out to the smaller cities and towns and then out into the peripheries. And this is going to last a while, isn't it? But the blog site has been very active this month, possibly our largest views for one single month ever, both for the blog and the podcast. So there's a lot to talk about in our March roundup. We should probably get on with it. There will be COVID stuff mixed in with non-COVID stuff, but just a reminder that life is going on for patients with non-coronavirus related illness. So I think it's important we do cover those things. So Simon, a lot to get through. Are you ready to go straight into it? And it's a really good point that you make. And one of the things that we talked about on the last podcast was that we need to make sure that we don't consider everything to be COVID. One of the things we're definitely seeing in Manchester is patients who you think are COVID aren't, and they end up having mycoplasma pneumonia or something like that. And patients who you think aren't COVID are because you've not really thought it. And this is a disease which has a really, a very, very broad range of presentations. There's the classic ones, and then there's the, the sort of the odd ones. So absolutely, we need to keep all of our emergency medicine skills out there and make sure that we're managing across the breadth of conditions, because the rest of the pathology hasn't disappeared, guys. It's out there somewhere. It's not coming into the ED, but it's out there somewhere. It is. And for patients or doctors who are patients, please still keep going to your emergency department if you need it. Uh, it was very important to remember that we are there and we will look after you. And we have different streams to look after people who are non-COVID related. So let's crack on. Started with Craig Ferguson right back at the beginning of March. Feels like a lifetime ago. Talking about AVP and hemorrhagic shock. We're always looking for answers in trauma. Was this an answer for you, Simon? Did this uh, seem to be something for the future? Hypothesis generating, really. It goes back to this idea that um, in the UK, we've always been told that you should never, never, never give vasopressors to patients who are in hemorrhagic shock. It doesn't make any sense. They're empty. Why would you try and tighten up the vasculature? But in fact, there's been a number of studies knocking around over the last few years. Well, going back a long time, in fact, where this is potentially something which may make a difference. Now, this is hypothesis generating. I think so. It is a randomized control trial, but it's only 100 patients. In hemorrhagic shock, they gave a bolus of four units of um, arginine vasopressin. And let's see what happened. Now, the outcome measure here was the amount of blood products used. So this is why I think it's interesting, but not definitive. They did see a reduction in blood products used, but that's not really a patient-related outcome. It's not a hard one. So very interesting. Makes you think about whether we're doing this, we should never do it, idea is correct. The French do it all the time as it happens. But yeah, have a read of that. Always interested to see what we can do in trauma. And the number of RCTs is relatively small. So this is worth having a look at. The European approach to this was nailed down for me when I was talking at a conference over in Austria a couple of years ago. They manage this so differently sometimes with the hemorrhagic shock. There is a lot of vasopressors going on over there and they're bright people. So it can't all be wrong. And I think 
to tie ourselves to the dogma would just to be restrict us from other opportunities, really. So have a look and maybe this will be something for the future. Yeah. And one of the other I just mentioned, I did um, the European Sim competition at USEM a couple of years back. We won, just like to mention that. And one of the things we did is we gave fentanyl to a patient who was awake. And some of our European colleagues sort of stood back aghast and thought, the patient's going to die if you give him fentanyl. And we went, we give it all the time. And they went, really? And so there's potential learning in both ways. One of the great things about FOMED is that we see how people exist, how they work and how they practice in different health economies. And we can learn loads. And don't tell anyone, but they give crystalloid too. Let's move on. Uh, the next was a post from me, actually, about uh, the Diploma in Immediate Care. We've mentioned it on the podcast before. So this is an exam run by the Royal College of Surgeons Edinburgh for people interested in pre-hospital care. There are two levels, the Diploma and the Fellowship. The Diploma is very much the entry-level exam, open to doctors, nurses, paramedics, anybody really who's got any dealings in pre-hospital care. Often people actually who haven't done much work in it but are looking to get into working in pre-hospital care. The Fellowship is a whole other kettle of fish, hardcore Generally, people who've gone on to training schemes or have been doing it a while, uh, not something I'll be doing in the next year or two, but maybe something for the future. On there, there's just some hints and tips that I picked up about sitting the diploma. The Royal College of Surgeons Edinburgh, like other colleges at the moment, has postponed its exams for now. It doesn't quite know where it's going to be. Normally, there'll be a sitting in July. Feels like a long time away. Who knows quite where they'll be. If you've entered for the diploma, keep that entry in. You don't need to do anything. The college will keep you informed. And if you're interested in doing it, and perhaps you have some downtime at the moment where you're at home, self-isolating and need something to do, have a look at this post. It gives you some hints and tips about where to go, what to look at, and to give yourself the best chance of passing what I think is a pretty fair exam. You did it a few years ago, Simon. I did back in 1996, actually. So I got in when I think the exam got to admit this, it was a little bit easier back then. I've seen what you had to go through and I've seen some of the people who've been there um, and maybe not passed. It was worth mentioning you did actually pass the exam. I did. I did. Yeah, the, the pass rate's about, I think, 75%. Different to the fellowship. If you're a first-time person sitting that fellowship exam, the pass rate this time was 26%. It is passable and worth giving a go. And for me, I actually really enjoyed it. It got me learning some more theoretical medicine, some science, which I enjoy. And so quite liked the being forced to make to do that stuff so i would recommend it yeah i'm a bit of a badge collector as you know so i like doing things like this but i do think there is something about people like you and me who consider ourselves to be educators but also continuously still being educated because it is different feeling that you're doing the exam or you're revising for a test and i think sometimes it's really helpful to go back and revisit that feeling because those are the people that we're dealing with as educators absolutely gives me a huge amount of sympathy for those people who are sitting their fellowship in whatever college that might be just what it takes to get through those things and having that insight and that understanding a little bit having like having children when you're in a pediatric area just gives you a different point of view and i think it's really helpful now looking at the blog you can then see that about this point point in March, March the 9th, 10th, somewhere around there, coronavirus really started to pick up. We're recording this on the 2nd of April. Important to say what data is because actually you never know what's going to happen in a week's time with this virus. But we just started on the blog on the 11th of March talking about preparations, what you were doing up in Manchester, and then perhaps the post, well, of the last year. It's definitely been our largest blog and podcast for, well, perhaps ever. Your interview with Roberto Costanini from Italy and some of the knowledge we can take from their experience, that clearly has had a huge yeah, effect so that on that podcast went viral, um, ironically. The data that was in there and the experience and the feeling that we got about how it was like to work in Italy at that time was incredibly important. And I know that it, we sent it around our organisation and it did focus people's minds on 
gosh, this is coming and we need to be prepared for this. And so it was a, it was a real privilege. And, and Roberto is an old friend of St. Emlyn's. He's uh, been over here on the course. We've seen him at a number of conferences around the world. A lovely, lovely guy. Um, he also appeared on Sky News shortly afterwards, if you want to go back and have a look at that. But I just think that that little intervention that he did by volunteering to come onto the podcast, I think has helped us enormously. And I can't thank him enough for that. A really good episode and worth listening to now, even though it feels a couple of weeks old, because we are probably in some places, well, where Italy were then. And for lots of places, my place is one of them just about to be an Italian style situation, I think. But the way that it has made people take this seriously, if they weren't already, was hugely valuable, I think. Now, on then to a non-COVID related topic, one from Stefan from Yeovil. And he's been doing an awful lot of work. Yeovil, if you have to look at league tables of performance and targets, they're still existing. Although I have to say people aren't really talking about the four-hour target in the UK that much at the moment. They have done so much in Yeovil, and this is just him passing on some of his experience about how you can get patients moving through the emergency department with or without coronavirus, I guess. Yeah, and I really like the way that they did it. I mean, the, the fundamental issue that he demonstrates in this is that if you want to improve flow in the emergency department, and this is going to be a massive surprise to all our listeners who know this already, is that it's not an emergency department issue on its own. I mean, clearly there are things we can do, but what you need is a whole hospital response. And the way that they approach this is to have a seven-day process so that you'd have a different sort of themed activity on each day. So day three will be 14-day Wednesday. You look at the patients who've been in for more than 14 days and make a real effort to get a plan for them. And that was taking part across the whole trust. There was big buy-in from all the different elements of the organisation. And guess what? If you have the whole organisation working together with a plan, things get better. And they do, as you quite rightly say, have the best performance figures in the UK. So there must be something in it. And it's probably worth a read. Again, this coronavirus, although frightening, and we'll talk about it some more, I'm sure, does present an opportunity for us to do other work. I've been messing around setting up another website. There's people doing other work. And I think this would be one thing that if you're not directly involved with the management of coronavirus or the planning of it, go and have a look at this because it may be things that you can use in the future or even using the stuff that's happening because of COVID-19 to make processes better when this is all, and it will, when it has all gone away and become a long distant memory, which I hope won't be too far away. Next on, a post, Simon, from you about, and this was a podcast as well, again, using expertise from outside about what intensive care knowledge the non-intensivist might need in the coming weeks. And this was useful. I think so. I hope so. What's going to happen in the next few weeks in our organisation, certainly, is we're going to get a lot of people redeployed into areas where they've not worked before. Now, clearly, we've got a big expansion in critical care beds. We're going to quadruple something like that, the number of critical care beds that we've got in my organisation. And we can't grow intensivists. We just can't. So there's some very interesting staffing models about how you'll have a, a sort of a core intensivist managing a group of other people. But we need to bring people who've not necessarily done ICU or have done it a long time ago or have just done it in, in small parts up to speed really quickly. And so I got together with Sarah Thornton, who's the head of school of anaesthesia in the northwest of England. And we just talked through how it would work and what the basics are that people need to know. Um, a lot of it was based around checklists. So we used a checklist from Imperial and, oh gosh, one from somewhere else, which I can't remember, quite remember now. And the idea that intensive care is actually a fairly structured environment and that with good management, with good support, and Sarah's absolutely, absolutely 
key on this is that we will deliver good support to these people. It can be done. And I think the same goes for emergency medicine as well. We're going to get people to redeploy into us. And actually, it's not this month, but one of the posts I'm going to put out probably today or tomorrow is a short guide on how to do a very rapid induction to becoming an emergency physician using the resources on the St. Emlyn site, which Ian, you led on um, a couple of years ago, and also the resources on the ARCHEM site, the Royal College of Emergency Medicine learning site, which have now been made free open access for the period of this pandemic. There's so much stuff out there. Sometimes, actually, it's a bit tricky to make sure you have the right information that you need. There's so much on social media. I have to admit, for the last two days, I have muted the words COVID-19 and coronavirus on Twitter. And just for my mental health, that was incredibly, incredibly useful. There are times when you need to be flooded with this information. There are times when you want to go and seek it. But perhaps just thinking about how you can make sure it's at a time that's good for you is really important. The ICU thing, Simon, do you think people who are non-intensivists should be frightened, scared, panicky, worried about having to take on those roles? Yes and no. I think if you believe that you can just wander into a different specialty and you'll be absolutely fine and know what you're doing, then you're a fool. And so there should be a degree of anxiety. And I think that's okay. The flip side is the intensivists are some of the the best educators, the most supportive and the most wonderful people I know, together with our anaesthetic colleagues, and they are not going to abandon you. That's very, very clear from everybody I've spoken to. So if you do get redeployed into these areas, there will be support, there will be help, there will be people there. I, I truly believe that. I mean, I'll have to wait and see if it happens, but I truly believe that from the people that I know. There are a lot of good things happening and we are tending to see the best of people within the healthcare setting, I think. I've heard of some stories outside healthcare, which are not great. There is fear and I think that fear is sometimes transmitting as poor behaviour, but hopefully not in hospitals, mainly in supermarkets from what I understand. But uh, keep working together and we, we should be able to get through this. One of the rather interesting comments that was made by a colleague in the, in the Northwest, and with no insult to anybody who has um, underlying mental health issues, is that people's personality traits become their personality disorders at times of stress. And it's certainly one of the things we are seeing is that people are amplifying. So I'm slightly more sarcastic than usual, which is not a good thing. And people who are normally anxious are more anxious than they usually are. People who are a little bit more assertive are more assertive than they usually are. People who are more thoughtful are more thoughtful. And we're seeing not necessarily a disorder, and I, I use that word lightly, but we're definitely seeing people's reaction under stress. And we have to recognize that everybody's in their own world. And we'll talk about this um, with the podcast you did with Liz, but we need to understand that everybody's got a little bit of stress on at the moment. I think everybody has an underlying level of anxiety. I was in a supermarket yesterday and the lady behind the checkout was pretty pretty anxious about how close I was having to get to put my shopping on the conveyor belt. And I'd had my children with me as well. And she definitely did not want them anywhere near her. And the way that she communicated that was probably slightly different to how she would have done previously. And we smiled and we did as we were asked and thought, well, I imagine actually sitting behind a checkout in a supermarket isn't without its own anxieties and stresses. And we need to remember that there's all sorts of gifts happening for healthcare at the moment. We're getting given stuff left, right and centre. But there are a number of people who are key workers who also will be feeling stress. And one of our roles as leaders, I suppose, in this whole thing is to, to show ourselves in the best light, even when we're not in the hospital. So when you pop down to the supermarket, do your very best to not look at people and say, do you know who I am? Of course, I have it harder than you, because probably maybe you might not. We had another post about COVID and this was about lung ultrasound. Ultrasound and me, we're intermittent friends 
I haven't got anywhere near the idea that this would be an option for me in the emergency department. Do you think it's something that we could be adopting? Oh, I think it's time for you to swipe right on lung ultrasound. I don't even know if that's right. Is it right or left? I know none of these things. But you definitely need to get into lung ultrasound for the COVID patients. And the reason is that we're seeing this in clinical practice is the swab testing takes too long. It takes ages to come back and we're getting loads and loads of false negatives. We're pretty sure about that. Chest x-rays are very variable in COVID-19, but the ultrasound changes, the subpleural collections and the constellation of the B lines and stuff like that, it's, as far as we can see, pretty pathognomic. And you can get a very, very good assessment of whether a patient's got a COVID-like lung in the emergency department within 10 to 15 minutes of them arriving. And that has huge implications for where you might put that patient, how you're going to treat them, what sort of therapies you're looking at. And it's also picking up non-COVID pathologies. And going back to what we said at the beginning, I really don't want to treat my COVID patient who isn't a COVID patient because actually they've got a PE or they've got um, a big pneumonia or they've got a big pleural effusion or something like that. I think we need to be very careful. And I think ultrasound is definitely, if you have the skills, if you have the training, a really useful tool here. Something for people to think about, especially I have this feeling that most resource rooms are going to have the same staff in them for periods of four to six hours, sometimes with patients who need stuff doing and sometimes with times where they can talk and think about other approaches to patients in that area. It's unlikely that if you're in recess, you're going to be, oh, can you just pop and see a couple of patients in minors? Either because your minors is no longer on the same site or they don't particularly want you in your PPE to doff, don, do whatever it is, and then go around there. So there may be time to think about new approaches in recess. Again, another opportunity that we can take during this otherwise rather stressful time. Yeah, it's, it's quite a good post, that one. It's um, by um, Sean McDermott and uh, Rachel Yu, who many of you will know from places like Smack. There's quite a lot of information on there, some really good links to some videos, which I think you'll find incredibly helpful, and some ideas about how we'd use it. So got to thank them very much for allowing us to put it up onto St. Emelin's, get it out to a wider audience. And there's been quite a lot of interest in that. Now, it has been a month of guest podcasts. We've had a lot of individuals on the podcast who we might not have had in the past. And this one was, I won't say indulgent. I hope it wasn't overindulgent, but this was a COVID-19 children's question and answers that I did with my boys. They're 14, 12 and 8, Archie, Jasper and Rufus. We just sat down with a microphone and I let them ask me questions and I'd ask them a couple of questions. And well, I don't know. Perhaps surprisingly, it's been more popular than I thought it would be. It's not really our usual output, but I've had some really nice feedback. There's helped some people with conversations that they otherwise weren't able to have with their children. And hopefully it's useful. And a little plug here. It's a side plug, I think. This has led into the work I've been doing on this new website, St. Emlyn's High, which I hope people have been able to check out. This is aimed at teenagers, really, who are interested in science and health. And this will be some of the type of content we'll be putting on there, getting the children's voice, teenagers' voices, explaining stuff to them in, in ways that they can understand and that can bridge that link between the Operation Ouch generation and the St. Emlyn's generation, trying to fill that bit in the middle. So this was nice to listen to do with my boys. It was helpful. I hope other people enjoyed it too. Yes, it's been very popular, actually. And there's been a lot of chat on Twitter about it as well. So I, th I definitely think you're onto something there. And so, yeah, I'm very keen to see how St. Emily's High develops. Now, Natalie then wrote us a very thoughtful post, Head versus Heart, Opening the Box, related to her experience, nothing really to do with the COVID sort of stuff, but something that's been going on. And this was supposed to be a talk at Bad EM Fest in South Africa, which I was supposed to be at as well. 
And sadly, of course, got postponed until next year sometime, we hope in February. And this was her post. It's both a post and the slides. And also there's a presentation of it like a podcast that you can listen to. There is. And I quite like this because I think it will be a useful tool to some of the people who experience a an adverse um, reaction to the, the things we're going through at the moment. And it's worth a read. It, it is based on her experiences and also from psychotherapy and allows a way of thinking. I, I can see you doing this at the end of the day about thinking how the world is affecting you, how you value yourself, how you self-validate. So acknowledge, allow, understand. And that is a three-pronged strategy for dealing with what can be very difficult events. And I think this is going to relate into moral injury, to post-traumatic stress disorder, to general anxiety, which we'll talk about in a second with your podcast with Liz. I think there are some tools here and I don't think it'll be for everybody. Our well-being posts are are never for everybody um, because I think well-being is a very personal thing. But I do think this will be helpful to a number of listeners. And this did lead into our final post and podcast of a very, very busy month. And this was a podcast I did with the fabulous Liz Crow, just talking about how we might be able to think about the fear and anxiety that some people are feeling. When I say some people, probably most people at some given point around the whole COVID-19 coronavirus environment. It just gave some hints and tips. A lot of it is very similar to what we've been talking about for a few years about how to deal with looking after tricky situations in critical care, emergency medicine, pre-hospital medicine in, in normal life. And really, it was just about focusing it down to how we can use this at this particular point where perhaps this is more affecting for people and also to the front of people's minds there are a lot of well-being resources out there as simon says they're not all for everybody but pick the ones that suit you and this was just to add into that library if you like of resources that are available <coughs> quick book in it's just the one cough okay it doesn't count oh my god can i catch it through a mic no, you can't it'll be fine oh phew okay just just wipe your microphone down Right. So I took quite a lot away from this. And what there's a couple of things which stick in my head. The first is that you can't know what other people's reactions, normality and experiences are. And therefore, you can't just go into somebody and tell them what they need to do. That That isn't going to work. So trying to get that empathy side of things so you can understand what other people's experiences are can be really difficult under these stress. And also that we all have our own sort of personal reactions to them. And lastly, the big thing I took away and I have practiced, I've got to say, is to have corona-free time. So for instance, last night we went out for the prescribed one um, exercise event of the day. So we went for a walk down the canal, hardly met anybody else, but we all left our phones at home for a good hour just to get away from the constant stuff on the news, the TV, the radio, WhatsApp groups, emails, blogs, podcasts, and all that kind of stuff. You really just need some downtime, more than that, more now than ever. Absolutely. And I would try and be quite ruthless about that. It's easy for me at the moment. I've got my boys with me and they are not that interested in coronavirus. In fact, they're much more interested in our subscription to Disney Plus, which we took out last week. Uh, They've made me watch the first three episodes of Star Wars, as in not the originals, the new ones. Uh, That's probably been just as traumatic, I think, as some of the things that I've had to see on Twitter about coronavirus. God, they weren't good. And they are not interested. And that's really helpful. Now, next week, my boys aren't here and I'm working and I'll be just in a corona bubble, which actually was a post you've posted in April, Simon, but I would point people towards. We will talk about it next month. But there is definitely something about remembering normality, remembering 
that life is going on and that this, as they say, too will pass. We will see non-corona times very soon. We just have to get through it. And I, we're going to end on the positives again. I think we said this on the last podcast, but if we look at ourselves, we are doing some amazing work. We are being incredibly highly valued by the public. And we always are, but even politicians think we're fabulous now. We've got a job, which is not the same for an awful lot of people out there. And this is a once a century opportunity to really demonstrate that what we do in emergency medicine, critical care, anaesthesia, all the other specialties, all the support services, big shout out to the environmental services who are doing all the cleaning at the moment. Everybody is pulling together. And actually, there are huge positives. Assuming we get through this, and I'm sure we will, then we will look back on it, I hope, with a degree of pride. I couldn't agree with you more. There are so many lessons to learn. This will change us all a little bit or a lot, but hopefully in really positive ways. Thank you again for listening to St. Nemlin's podcast. Whenever I listen to another podcast these days, they always tell you to rate us on iTunes or subscribe or things like that. And I feel just to be part of the team, we should say that too. So do think about doing that. But we will be back next month and probably before. There is so much to talk about and it's great to be here to pass on and share with you everything that's going on in our world of emergency medicine and critical care at the moment. Take care, everyone. Take care. Oh, and wash your hands. (laughs) 